So this, uh, this morning is the second in our current series about these big questions about the Christian faith and life. And last week, if you were here, you may remember we talked about why bad things happen to good people, or more particularly, how we see God in it and find God in it when they do. Because the reality is that we all experience bad things in life. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we escape that reality. And it doesn't mean that they're happening because God doesn't love us. I said last week that our modern scientific way of thinking in this age of science that we live in uh, assumes that in order for us to be credible as Christians, we ought to have an answer to why bad things happen. And we tend to think to ourselves that even if God isn't the cause of bad things, then surely he must be ultimately in control of everything. So he could stop them happening if he wanted to. But you know, that presupposes a certain way in which God interacts with his creation, which perhaps, rather than being a biblical view, is more of a reflection of how we think about things since the Industrial Revolution, the age of the machine. Brian McLaren says, The Bible never says God is in control. In control derives its meaning from the world of machines and machine operation. But the universe is not merely a machine and God isn't a machine operator. God's relationship with the universe, according to the Bible, is more relational and creative than mechanistic or totalitarian. A couple of big words there. Mechanistic is a way of relating that is robotic and impersonal and mechanical like a machine. Totalitarian is when someone insists on having absolute control in every part of people's lives whenever they possibly can. But God isn't robotic and mechanical. God doesn't insist on controlling human life like a machine operator or a dictator. Now, ultimately, absolutely, God is in control in terms of the broad brushstrokes of how human history is going to pan out. He most certainly will do what he is going to do, precisely when he is going to do it. And nothing can or will stand in his way of that. So he is most definitely in control in that sense. But in the meantime, he is not the micromanager of the universe. Not because he couldn't be if he wanted to be, but by his own choice as to how he's decided to interact with his world. Now, some Christians may say that this undermines God's greatness if he doesn't control every single tiniest thing in that way. But as Brian Hebblethwaite says, it depends on what we understand by greatness. Is it greater to create in a single act the whole story of the world from start to finish, in one timeless moment, knowing every detail of past, present, and future in a single intuitive grasp? Or is it greater to compose the genuinely open future drama of creation, interacting appropriately with free creatures whose choices and acts are genuinely their own, and winning their response non-coercively, in other words, willingly and gladly, irrespective of the cost? Now, this same mechanistic way of thinking, 
underlies the way that some Christians think about getting answers to prayer. That God is like a prayer answering machine where you just need to program him right to feed the machine with faith or with the right Bible verses in order to get the right results coming out at the other end. But you know, that's not relational, is it? It's thinking of how God works as like a science experiment where if you follow the instructions, it must always produce the same result. So that's treating God as mechanical, not relational. So this week, we're going to have a look at how to make sense of the story of the Bible, this big story of the Bible, this overarching story, and see if that can help us to understand a bit more about the way things are. Now, when I talk about the story of the Bible, I don't mean story as in a novel. I mean narrative. And if you look at the dictionary, it says that narrative has two meanings. One is a description of a series of events. And the other is a particular way of explaining or understanding events. And it's both of these together that are what we mean when we talk about the big story of the Bible. A description of a series of events and a particular way of explaining and understanding those events. Now when I first became a Christian as a teenager... I was given a Bible and, of course, encouraged to read it. So not knowing the first thing about it, um, I did what seemed to be the obvious thing, which was to start at the beginning, like you would with any other book. And that wasn't too bad to begin with, although I did have lots of questions about why Genesis didn't seem to match up with what I'd been told in science lessons. And I also wondered how... Adam and Eve's children could marry each other. That didn't seem right. Or if that wasn't what happened, where did their spouses come from? And a few other questions like that. But when I asked my church leaders those kind of questions, they seemed to think I was just being difficult. (laughs) They said that I was letting my head get in the way of my heart. It's obviously a bad thing, apparently and that I needed to just believe. Which I think was probably their way of saying they didn't know either, but they didn't want to admit it. I can remember one day we had a guest speaker who came and he was talking about the six-day creation account in Genesis. And he said, if that's what God says happened, then that's good enough for me. Which I thought sounded like a very spiritual way of looking at it. After all, the the last thing that I wanted to do was disagree with what God said. So I left that to one side for many years until I had such a long list of things that didn't make any sense, which I was supposed to just believe, that finally I had to do something about it. And that is why I started studying theology. But those weren't the only problems that I had trying to figure out the story of the Bible. Half of the Old Testament seemed to be devoted to something called the law. And they seemed very pleased with that at the time. But then when I looked at what Paul said in Romans and Galatians, he seemed to be saying that the law was rubbish. I mean, my words, not his. And people were supposed to be freed from it. 
What's more, speaker after speaker said that it was impossible to fulfill this law anyway and that that was why Jesus had to come and do it for us. Which kind of made me wonder why God had given it to them in the first place if it was impossible to keep. Well, that sounded like a, a bit of a cruel trick. I mean, imagine telling your child to do something that you know perfectly well they'll never be able to manage. I remember asking someone once, how do you explain why the story of Israel is in the Bible? And he said, I don't. I just start with Jesus. And on the one hand, I could could see the merit in that. It certainly made life easier. But on the other hand, the Old Testament is about 75% of the whole thing, which seems like quite a lot to skip over and just start with Jesus. So something inside me was saying, the people who decided to include this Old Testament must have had a pretty good reason. And you know, when you start to read the New Testament, it pretty soon becomes obvious that Jesus is entering into an existing story of people who've been in a relationship with God for thousands of years. So the story so far isn't something we can just skip over. I said last week that Lynn and I like box sets, and we are watching Suits right now, starring Meghan Markle. Now, notice they didn't used to describe it as starring Meghan Markle, but for some reason they do now. Anyway, we are on episode 12 of season 7, and every episode always begins with previously on Suits. It's like a 30-second summary of the story so far, which they think is all you need to know to just plunge into the story from this episode. And many Christians assume that that's all they need to know about the Old Testament, a kind of a 30-second summary of previously in the Bible before they go straight for the episodes in which Jesus appears. So what I'd like to try and do this morning is to share with you an overview of the whole story of the Bible, the story of God so far. And the reason that I say so far is because this is a story that hasn't ended. It's a story that we are invited to be part of if we want to. And I think that's rather a good definition of a Christian. Someone who says, I want to be included In God's story. Someone who says, I want to bring my story into the story of God. I want to bring my story under the rule and reign of his story. Now, a lot of people are surprised when they find out that most of the Bible is story, that it mostly conveys truth through narrative rather than conveying truth through propositions which is what you might expect to find in a textbook. And the core features that we find in the story are these. How it all began. Where things went wrong. What God did about it. How we feature and how it's all going to end. And the point of this story is to answer our questions about who God is and what he's like. Who we are why the world is the way that it is, how God is involved in the world, how we can know him personally, and how that story is continuing. 
These are the questions that every subplot in the Bible and every little vignette within that big story is helping to answer. Sometimes it does it directly through statements, but more often than not, it's doing it through pictures and metaphors and people's stories. And the reason for the story is so that we can better understand the God who we are experiencing and following today. So let's see if we can describe some of the features of this story. You may know that the very first words we come across in the Bible are in the beginning, which is what the word Genesis means. And it's painting a picture of God creating the heavens and the earth. Now as we read that, we have to understand that the concern of the original author and his original audience is not how the world was made, but why the world was made and who made it. It's answering what we would now call the theological questions that people had in the ancient world. It's not answering the scientific questions that people have in the modern world. See, we want to know how things work and how they were made and when they were made, the kind of stuff that we find in a textbook. But they wanted to know who made them and why they were made. Now, you may be interested to know that the Hebrew word in Genesis that we translate as God made is never used in the Bible in a manufacturing sense. It's used in a bringing it into being sense. So like in Psalm 51, for example, where it says, create in me a clean heart, O God. It's not talking about a medical procedure. It's saying, bring it about, Lord. Make it happen. Bring it into being. And then we see as the very pinnacle of God's creative work, right at the end of that story, he makes human beings or humankind. Now, we think of Adam as a person's name, don't we? Which, obviously, it is. But in the Hebrew, which is the language that the Old Testament was written in, Adam is also the word for humankind. And the reason that that is relevant is because Throughout the Old Testament, what we find is that the names people were given were considered to be significant, saying something meaningful about their role and identity and calling. And that's why very often the meaning of someone's name is mentioned. So this story of Adam and Eve is not just the story of two individuals. It's also the story of everybody. N.T. Wright says these two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 3, which of course are not meant to be photographic reproductions of what happened at the beginning, are great symbolic pointers, signposts towards a deeper, stranger reality that human words are probably unable to express. That's how symbols work, and that's how biblical symbols work. So the most faithful way of reading the Bible is not to interpret it literally whenever you possibly can. It's to interpret it in the way that's most faithful to how the original author and audience would have understood it whenever you possibly can. And since God never bypassed the historical context of those biblical writers, 
in revealing to them what he did, when he did. We can expect to see their understandings of things like science and medicine reflected in what they wrote. And that's because God never changes and God's truth never changes but people's understanding of how the world works is always changing. So the Bible isn't trying to tell us any of that. It's trying to timelessly answer the questions that we looked at a moment ago. So there are three key points in the Genesis account that I want to share with you. The first one is in the very last verse of Genesis 1 when God had finished creating, and it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And despite all of the problems which surfaced, God has never stopped seeing it that way. And that's why we should look after it as best we can. And it's why even in its damaged state, God believes that it's worth saving. The second point is that when God made people, it says that he made us in the image of God. In other words, we were made to be his image bearers, to show the world what God is like. And because God made us to be a bit like him, he gave us the capacity to love him and to love other people. And that was our destiny, made to be in a relationship with God, an intimate relationship, and to know him personally. And that, of course, is pictured in Genesis 3, where we see the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. And then the third thing is that God also gave us a choice that we call free will as to whether we choose to love him or not. And that's because in order for love to be genuine, there had to be a choice. Uh, There's an old song. The, The words are, If you were the only girl in the world and I were the only boy, well, if that were the case, then it wouldn't be saying much to the girl if you chose her, would it? So in his creation, God had to build in the potential for alternative choices, alternative voices for us to listen to that would be competing for our love and our allegiance. Because even though God made us to love him, and wants us to love him, if there was no alternative to that, then it wouldn't really be love at all, would it? Because love that is forced on someone is abuse, and God is never an abuser. So by creating us with free will and allowing alternative choices, God was taking a risk. But love always involves risk. You can't love someone without taking the risk of them rejecting you. So there always had to be the possibility that we could turn our backs on him. And then, of course, the risk that comes with that free will is exactly what we see pictured in Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the only tree in the garden that God had asked them not to. Not much, you'd think, to ask. One tree. And it was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a funny name for a tree, you might think. But what it's saying is that by choosing to eat that fruit, Adam and Eve, or if you prefer, the human race, was making a statement that we'll decide what's right and wrong for ourselves 
Thank you very much. Which sounds very postmodern. We'll decide what's right for us. So it's picturing Adam and Eve going it alone, rejecting God's authority, God's love, and God's story. So this story in the creation account is not just about two people eating a stupid apple that God gets all picky about because he's a control freak and that this somehow dooms the rest of us. No, it's not so much an historical story about them, it's more an explanatory story about us in which we see ourselves reflected But in that story, it does set in train a chain of events that affected us and that somehow spilled over into the world we live in. Now, the collective term that the Bible uses to describe what's gone wrong is sin. And it's important that we realize that sin is not just a list of the things that we personally do wrong. It's also like an infection or a virus in the air that we breathe that affects not just us, but our relationships, our attitudes, our understanding of God and who he is and what he's like. And even in some mysterious way that doesn't make complete sense, it also somehow affects the very workings of the planet that we live on. So we see that pictured when we look at what God said would be the consequences of Adam and Eve's decision in Genesis 3. And people often read that as God punishing them. But that's a misreading. What he's saying is that there are consequences. It's knocked human life off its axis. So when God banishes them from the Garden of Eden, it's not punishment. It's so that they don't eat from the other tree, which has a name, the tree of life, that God had always invited them to eat from instead But now, he needed to stop them eating from that tree so that they wouldn't live forever in that damaged state. And the other consequence we see in the story is that life became hard when it was never supposed to be. So pain in childbirth, Genesis 3.16, is just one example, one way of picturing the world moving out of kilter from God's original design and intention not working in the way that it was supposed to because pain has now become part of human experience. The very earth itself, the natural world, is somehow affected. And that's pictured in, again in Genesis 3 when God says, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat? That's what this is picturing. Human life becoming hard. Things not as they should be and people not as they should be. And even the world that we live in is affected. As we said last week, we are broken people living in a broken world. And as the story then continues in Genesis and and beyond As this infection called sin, this virus, this enemy invader that's knocked the world off course and human society off course, as it continues to get a grip, as love for God and love for each other 
which we were designed to do and we have the capacity to do, as that gets replaced with selfishness and self-interest, in wanting to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, thank you very much. This desire to be in sole control of our lives with God left out of the equation. We see that pictured in all of the stories that follow. We see all kinds of ways in which human society starts to break down. We see Adam saying to God, I was afraid of you, so I hid. Which was never supposed to happen. But you know, one of the first consequences of sin that we see is that people assume God is to be feared rather than loved. We see Cain killing his brother Abel, and we see the Tower of Babel. We see families destroyed, relationships broken, and human life falling apart. We see bad stuff becoming the norm. Life becomes about getting, not giving. Violence becomes part of human nature. People start lying. People become selfish and boast that they don't need God. And this image of God that we were made with gets distorted. So much so that at times it seems to be lost completely. We see races and cultures trying to dominate each other. We see tribes and nations fighting each other for ego reasons, for economic reasons, or just plain evil. And in all of those people's stories, we see ourselves. In what they're like, we see mirrored aspects of what we're like. We see them understanding God and misunderstanding God. We see them experiencing God and welcoming God and turning away from God. So in the midst of this disaster, which you may say God could have foreseen, but I would say is the risk that had to be taken in creating us with free will, God begins the process of rescue and restoration. Now you may say, well, why didn't God just start again? But you know, he showed us that that wouldn't work, didn't he, in the story of Noah and the ark. Because unless you're willing to take free will out of the equation to make us love him and make us obey him, you can start as many times as you like, but it will inevitably go the same way again. So what happens straight after the ark? We see all the same things happening all over again. So this process of rescue and restoration starts with God entering into a binding promise that he will do that, called a covenant, in his way and in his time. And he repeats that covenant promise time and again throughout the Old Testament. And the word testament means covenant, by the way. So the first testament is the start of the covenant story, and the second testament is how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And God starts with a family, with Abraham and Sarah, and he says that he will make them into a great nation. And that's showing us how God always works through people. Not perfect people. You won't find anyone in the Old Testament who qualifies for that title, but ordinary, flawed people just like us, who he invites to come and be part of what he's going to do. And that family, as you may know, becomes the nation of Israel. 
And then most of the rest of the Old Testament is taken up with stories of this family's successes and failings, mostly failings, in, in living as God's people. Stories in which, again, we see ourselves and our own experiences mirrored. And this is where, of course, we come across the law. Uh, now, the law is the Ten Commandments and the other things that God said through Moses should characterize how he wanted his people to live. And what I think was happening there is that, in effect, the people said to Moses, you go up the scary mountain, you go and meet with that scary God, find out what he wants from us, tell us what the rules are, and we'll do it. But you know the problem with that is that God's intention from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden onwards, was never to have a relationship with us that's driven by rules, by don't do this and don't do that. Now that doesn't mean there should be no rules, that anything goes, but just that the nature of our relationship with him shouldn't be characterized by rule-keeping any more than a parent's relationship with her child is characterized by rule-keeping. Now, obviously, it includes some of that, but it's not defined by that. It's love and care and compassion and friendship and joy and delight in each other that defines it. Now, personally, I think that God giving Israel the law was always supposed to instill in them a deep longing for something more than a relationship defined by rules, however much those rules may have been good in themselves. It's rather like the way that the Tim Hughes song puts it. There must be more than this. But you know, it's telling us something also about human nature, I think, which is often to depersonalize and to back away from a dynamic relationship with God and to opt instead for a static one, that's framed by religious ceremony and lists of rules and things you need to do rather than a real, living and exciting and maybe at times scary one-on-one relationship with the living God. So even as God was working with Israel to instill in them this desire for something more, he was also laying the groundwork for the sending of the Messiah. The Messiah was an anointed one, promised through the prophets who would put everything to rights. God was creating a context of a nation called the people of God with an existing relationship with God, with sacred writings and symbols of priest and temple into which that Messiah would come and be born and into which he would bring new meaning. But what just about everyone missed when he did come was that no simply human Messiah could ever turn things around and make them right. Because in the entire period of Old Testament history, the stories show us that no human leader ever had. Abraham couldn't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Even the great King David couldn't do it. The list goes on. Which is why as he always knew that he would, the Messiah God sent was his son. Now, I said a moment ago that it wouldn't work for God to just start again. But actually, 
through Jesus, God did start again. The difference in starting again with Jesus was that he was truly God as well as truly man. So when the New Testament writers talk about Jesus as the second Adam or the last Adam, that's what they're referring to. Through Jesus, we now have a choice as to how we want to be human. Do we want to continue being human after the pattern of the first Adam, to keep living life his way? Or do we want to be human after the pattern of the second Adam, Jesus, and live life his way? And that is why the Apostle Paul contrasts being in Adam with being in Christ. And it's what the prophet Jeremiah was talking about when God said through him that this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Writing his law on our hearts and minds through the presence of the Holy Spirit instead of just writing them on Moses' tablets of stone. The relationship is no longer static, it's dynamic. Through what Jesus did for us on the cross, we have the option to live in Adam or in Christ. So that, of course, is what being born again means. We have the option of a taster of the presence and power of God in our lives now through the Holy Spirit and the fullness of eternal life when this present life comes to an end. It's a continuation of life in a new heaven and a new earth in which, through Jesus, everything that went wrong will have been reversed. A cosmos that has been decontaminated from sin. Living in a world where things are as they should be and people are as they should be. And you know, it's no accident that the tree of life that we read about in Genesis makes a reappearance in the story in the very last book of the Bible. It's mentioned three times in Revelation 2 and Revelation 22. And it comes with a fresh invitation to freely eat of it, and as Adam and Eve were invited to right at the beginning. It's picturing life as it should be and one day will be. And until then, we just get a glimpse of it we experience some of the first fruits of it through answered prayer and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And human life as it will be is summed up in this prophetic insight in Revelation 21 that we looked at last week. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things that we read about in the Genesis story has passed away. All of the things that we see happening at the beginning of the story are being reversed and being healed and being made good. Mike, I wonder if I could ask you to come up. So that's the story of the Bible.
That's the story of God. And it's not so much history in the modern sense of that word as it is his story. And it's also, of course, our story if we want it to be. So here's the question. Do you want to be part of God's story? Do you want to merge your story into the story of God? To bring your story under the rule and reign of his story? Do you want, as the Apostle Paul puts it, to be in Christ with Christ in you? All we need to do is to ask. All we need to do is to want to be part of that story more than the story that we're currently living in. To use our God-given free will to decide to love God and be a follower of Jesus.